Welcome everybody to the 2013 August Comte Memorial Lectures here at LSE. It's my pleasure to introduce Professor John Simmons, who will speak to us tonight on territorial rights. Professor Simmons is coming to us from the University of Virginia, where he teaches legal, political, and moral philosophy. I think it's no exaggeration to say that John Simmons is one of the leading contemporary Lockians. He's an authority on authority, legitimacy, political obligation. He's a, an editor, one of the editors of Philosophy and Public Affairs. There are many things that are remarkable about John Simmons. Maybe mention another two which I found particularly remarkable. Uh, one is that John Simmons is probably trying not to offend anyone in the room, but I think he's the contemporary political philosopher with the most, my, most widely read PhD thesis um, around. <laughs> In his book, uh, Moral Principles and Political Obligations, turned into something like a, like a modern classic, where he offers a Lockean theory of political obligation, making a strong case for actual consent theories of political obligation, and coming up with arguments against alternative theories, gratitude theories, natural duty theories of political obligation, to which I think advocates of that theory still have to come up with good responses to the counter-arguments that you present in that book. The second remarkable thing is that you're probably the only anarchist that ever worked for the FBI. <laughs> I mean, you're not an anarchist of the bomb-throwing kind, a philosophical anarchist, but you believe that most existing states are actually illegitimate, um, but that didn't seem to be a problem when you... I think you taught at the National Academy of the FBI for six years, ethics. I mean, that in its own right would be an interesting talk, I guess, teaching ethics to the FBI... Um, but today we'll hear from you about uh, territorial rights, today's talk, boundaries of authority. Over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gabriel. It is all true. I'm afraid I did work for the FBI. They did a background check on, on me that failed badly. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank the department for inviting me, and thank you all for coming. Uh, I looked at the list of previous Auguste Comte lecturers, and it's very intimidating. Um, I can't pretend to belong on that list, but I am very honored to be associated with it in this way, and for that I'm grateful. Uh, my subject today and tomorrow will be the territorial claims that states make over portions of the earth. As far as I know, Comte wrote absolutely nothing about this topic. I have resolved to at least mention his name in each of these lectures, however. It took some work, but I will accomplish this. The modern state is a territorial entity. It identifies itself with and claims various rights of control over a particular bounded geographical territory. Indeed, international law defines states in these terms. The States, which are the principal agents that international law purports to govern, uh, are defined as permanent populations with fixed territories under government control. That's roughly the wording of the 1933 Montevideo Convention. Uh, we know that territorial boundaries of states are uh, delineated with imaginary lines over the surface of the earth, and as children were encouraged to think of states as having shapes of that sort in the way that we study and learn to identify differently colored shapes on the maps. Most of us can make a reasonably accurate drawing of the shape of our own state, and maybe a few others besides. 
Italy is always a pretty good bet, I think. Um, suggesting, again, how closely we associate our political societies with their particular clearly bounded surface territories. Exactly where these territorial lines is obviously a matter of considerable importance to states, and the history of the conflicts in which modern states have engaged has regularly involved attempts to redraw these lines by force. Uh, Abraham Lincoln once told the United States Congress, probably sounding a lot like Daniel Day-Lewis when he did it, that a nation consists of its territory, its people, and its laws. The territory, he said, is the only part which is of certain durability. Lincoln was fortunate not to have had to consider the prospect of portions of his nation's territory being lost under steadily rising oceans, but he certainly knew uh, what we all know, that the durability of national territory as opposed to the reasonable durability of land uh, has throughout the modern state's history been anything but certain. During Auguste Comte's lifetime, for instance, there it is, (laughs) uh, which spanned roughly the same period as Lincoln's, by the way. (laughs) Comte would have witnessed the United States unsuccessfully attempting to take Canada from Britain in the War of 1812, but successfully occupying Spanish Florida a few years earlier, and three decades later he'd have seen the United States grabbing large portions of Mexico by force in what was probably my country's most shameful war. In Europe during the same period, the Napoleonic Wars set in motion a major redrawing of the map of the world, while a few years later the participants in the Crimean War and the series of wars surrounding it scrambled and fought to secure influence over attractive portions of a faltering Ottoman Empire. Today there are more than 175 active territorial disputes between recognized sovereign states in the world, with many more involving emerging polities and other societies not yet recognized by the United Nations. Many of these disputes have produced and still continue to produce shooting wars between the disputants. One morally important result of this long shared history of territorial conflict, of course, is that virtually every contemporary state's territorial claims are deeply stained by injustices and unwarranted violence that help to establish them. So the philosophical problems involved in understanding the possible justifications for states' territorial claims, which is the problem that I will address today and tomorrow, have a very real and virtually continuous practical presence in our political lives. I should emphasize uh, from the start that I will not be questioning uh, the justification for states taking their modern territorial form. Um, It is the extent of states' claims to territory and the particular geographical territories that they claim about which I will raise some questions. It's not especially hard to think of uh, good reasons, both explanatory and justificatory, for political societies having evolved into territorial entities. States are in the business of delivering certain kinds of goods to their members and their ability to do that more efficiently than members can provide those goods for themselves is surely an important part of the justification for having states. The most important of those goods are public goods like security from domestic and foreign aggression and things like clean air and water. And it is, of course, far more efficient 
to, li- to deliver goods of that sort to a discrete geographical area, and so to all members of the state within it, than it would be to deliver them to a set of members who were geographically dispersed uh, or who were interspersed with non-members in some way. More generally, I think, one simply can't beat territorial concentration for administrative convenience. Uh, Further, of course, states controlling particular bounded territories gives them the opportunity to serve as stewards of scarce or easily depleted resources within their boundaries, thus combating the potential for so-called tragedies of the commons. This is unhappily not an opportunity that most real states seize very enthusiastically. Uh, Lots of political scientists also believe that the bounded territorial state triumphed over its competitors and became the norm in political life, at least partly, because states that acknowledged limits to their claims over land were less threatening to their neighbors, and so were the objects of fewer preemptive wars launched against them. All of these kinds of general claims about the merits of states controlling bounded territories I'm going to simply assume to be true and set to one side. My concern here is going to be instead with the possible justifications for particular states in the world to exercise control over those particular geographical domains that they claim as their territories. And that issue can't be adequately addressed simply by showing that state control over some bounded area or other is the maximally efficient political arrangement or that states can't perform their core functions adequately without control over some territory or other. It is perhaps worth remembering in this regard that political societies have not always been organized on bounded territories. The Greek polis, while it was often, though not exclusively, centered on a particular city, Sparta, for instance, was organized around a group of villages rather than a particular city, as I understand it. But typically, the Greek polis had quite amorphous geographical boundaries, their domain being determined less by geographical lines than by the location of groups of willing members. Empires, of which there were some, while, of course, distinguishing between what was within and what was without their firm control, often acknowledged no clear outer boundaries to the land they were entitled to control. Political authority in feudal systems ran less along territorial lines than it did along tangled lines of contracts of allegiance, all under the overarching claim to universal jurisdiction made by the church. And finally, of course, various migratory tribes and clans, some of which more or less persist in remote regions of the earth today, have often had at least quasi-political structures without conceiving of themselves as the masters of any fixed or precisely delineated territory at all. So the bounded territorial state, while it's the only form of polity with which any of us has any personal experience, is not the only possible political form. A side question, must something be a territorial entity in order to at least be recognizable as a state, as international law appears to assume in its definition of states? Actually, this seems to me unlikely as well, at least if territory is understood as meaning a fixed portion of the Earth's or perhaps some other planet's surface. It's not very difficult to imagine, I think, political societies with all the other characteristics of the modern state, or at least most of the other characteristics of the modern state that are located on 
ocean-going vessels or airships or space stations. And with rapidly developing technologies in the area, it's become easier even to imagine political entities that perform most or all of the central functions of the state without having their members even clustered together, let alone clustered together on a bounded portion of the earth. Simply imagine access to public goods being delivered electronically in various ways with personal security and social services and infrastructure access and spaces for political association and speech and so on, all remotely supplied through a societal network. The fact remains, though, that all of the political societies that we would now confidently identify as states, including those such as EU members with slightly softened borders, uh, still make a long familiar set of distinctive claims over their particular bounded territories. These are the claims I have in mind. They include at least the following. Claims to exclusive legal jurisdiction over the territory, rights to exercise their chosen levels of control over movement of persons and material across the boundaries of the territory, and rights to exclusive control over the non-human things and beings contained in or constitutive of the territory. Slightly more specifically, states all claim the right to coercively regulate the conduct of all within their territories by means of making and enforcing legal rules and other kinds of directives, the right to full control over land and resources within the territory that are not privately owned, the right to tax and regulate privately owned land and resources within the territory, the right to control or prohibit movement across the boundaries of the territory, the right to determine the standing of those within the territory, for instance, by establishing rules governing residency or citizenship or diplomatic status and so on, and the right to prohibit individual or group territorial secession or alienation of territory to non-member persons or groups. Some of these claims, notice, are primarily jurisdictional in nature. That is, they're claims primarily to regulate and control a particular territory rather than being claims to exclude persons from entering or using it. Others of the territorial claims that states make are more property-like. Right? They are exclusionary claims over a region, claims to choose who or what may pass over its boundaries and who may use and how they may use the resources located in it. These more property-like claims, which extend, of course, not simply over a surface geographical space, but also over the resources that are on, under, above, and around it, will be my subject in tomorrow's talk. Today I want to focus our attention uh, instead on states' more jurisdictional claims over the territories with which they identify themselves. It is, I think, commonly assumed by most ordinary folks, and sometimes not sure whether philosophers actually know what most ordinary folks think, but I'll pretend that I do. Um, it's commonly assumed, assumed, I think, that these jurisdictional rights that states claim, like all the territorial rights that they claim and exercise, are not merely legal rights, that is, merely rights conferred by international law. They are at least often, we mostly assume, also moral rights over those territories or morally justified legal rights over them, at least in the cases of legitimate or reasonably just states. It's on the possible moral justifications of states' territorial rights that I want to concentrate here. 
Now, the jurisdictional claims that states make are not, of course, simply claims that they make with respect to the geographical space itself. They are primarily claims over the human beings located in that space. States claim authority over those within their territories. They claim the right to make and enforce laws and directives for them and the right to peaceful compliance from them. States claim the right to speak the law to a set of persons, as the literal meaning of jurisdiction suggests. And the relevant set of persons is now primarily located in territorial terms. As a result, the word jurisdiction now refers as well to the geographical area over which legal authority is thought to extend. This is not to say that states claim jurisdictions coincide precisely with their claimed territories, nor is it to say that the kind of authority claimed over those within the territory is uniform throughout states, as we all know, typically exercise only a truncated form of legal authority over non-citizens, over resident aliens and visitors and foreign diplomats and the like, and normally only when these non-citizens are physically within the state's territorial domain. States also enforce some rights against their own citizens wherever they may be, non-territorially, just as they enforce the law with respect to some kinds of wrongs, regardless of where they occur or who commits them. For instance, consider cases of piracy on the high seas. Similarly, the rights states claim against alien persons and nations are primarily, but not exclusively, territorial in nature. That is, they're mostly rights not to be interfered with in exercising their territorial jurisdiction. But states do claim a variety of rights against aliens not to be harmed in their non-territorial interests, for instance, their economic interests, and not to have their territorial interests uh, threatened or harmed in ways that involve no territorial incursions at all, and to have their, not to have their citizens unlawfully harmed while they are abroad. So what we can say most accurately, I guess, is that actual states' authority claims are territorially centered, and the right states claim against aliens are principally rights not to be harmed or interfered with in exercising their territorial jurisdiction or control. Philosophical theories of states' territorial rights generally purport to justify at least most of the territorial claims, both jurisdictional and property-like, made by decent or legitimate states in the world. That is, they try to show that the legal authority that decent states claim over bounded geographical territories is not just a fact about the way the world operates, but a well-grounded, morally defensible claim to authority. I want now to briefly explore these theories of territorial rights, organizing my discussion around three kinds of philosophical approaches to these issues, into which I think recent theories seem naturally to divide. I should emphasize that these theories are indeed quite recent. I mean, until about 15 years ago, the subject had been largely ignored. There had been almost nothing written on this subject. Um, Of the great historical philosophers um, and political theorists, John Locke was the only one who spilled more than a thimble full of of ink on the topic. Um, And even his account of states' territorial rights is extraordinarily brief. Between Locke's time and ours, uh, philosophers seem mostly to have 
taken for granted that states' territorial claims can be easily justified or else not thought that the problem of justification was worth the effort of stating and questioning it. In any event, um, philosophical theories of states' territorial rights, as I said, seem to me to divide naturally into three very broad types, each of which identifies a different sort of collective as being entitled to the status of territorial right holder. I'll call these the voluntarist, the functionalist, and the nationalist theories of states' territorial rights. So voluntarist theories maintain that groups of persons that choose to be and are capable of being self-determining political societies in fact possess the moral right to be or to make themselves autonomous states. Those groups that make such a choice have the right to be self-determining on the particular geographical territory that they occupy. The reason exercising jurisdictional and property-like rights over that territory is taken to be necessary to societies being genuinely self-determining. There are two versions of voluntarism that I want to distinguish. I won't go on making distinctions in it endlessly. I know that's what philosophers do, but I'll try not to do it myself. But I do want to make this distinction. Um, there are what we might call plebiscitary or majoritarian versions of voluntarism, where the idea is that it's the majority or perhaps a supermajority of the persons living in some territory that's taken to be entitled to make the choice to be an independent society on behalf of all of the people living in that territory. Uh, the Lockean sort of individualist version of voluntarism, which it won't surprise anyone to learn that I favor, um, holds that the territorial rights of voluntarily incorporated groups derive not from the choices of the majority of residents in some territory, but only from the choices of individual persons to convey to their states certain of the rights that they antecedently possessed over the specific land on which those individuals live and labor. So that's the voluntarist approach. Second, functionalist theories derive states' robust rights to territorial control from the fact that controlling territory is taken to be necessary to states' performances of their morally mandatory functions. Because those functions must be performed territorially, a state's right to perform them implies a right to exclusive control over the particular territories within those which those functions are in fact being performed. The moral mandates in question in contemporary theories of this sort are generally either broadly Kantian or consequentialist in character. Kantians take the morally mandatory function of states to be that of doing justice. This gets some different interpretations. The most basic Kantian idea is that doing justice involves making it possible for there to be determinate, enforceable individual rights, especially property rights. Or they may be, as in Rawls' version of Kantianism, say, uh, doing justice involves guaranteeing that all the basic goods in society are subject to a just distributive structure. Consequentialists take the morally mandatory task of the state to be that of maximizing overall good results, again, interpreted in various ways, usually good meaning something like uh, constitutive or uh, a means to happiness or well-being. Um, 
In both of these cases, reasonably robust rights over the specific territories in which the state does its work are thought to be required for states to do the mandatory work that they must do in order to be legitimate. Finally, nationalist theories hold that only groups that have certain additional characteristics beyond mere willingness to be a state or effectiveness in administering justice possess the right to be self-determining on a territory. The characteristics are generally taken to include things like a shared history, a shared language, shared religion, shared culture, and on many versions of nationalism, a further characteristics that that is required for a right of self-determination is the group's attachment to a particular geographical territory on which the right to be self-determining may be exercised. The territory in question might be something like the group's national homeland, or it might in some other way be specially tied to the group through the group's history, through its productive labor, uh, through the fact that various locations have acquired symbolic significance within the culture and so on. But it's the specific relationship between a nation's identity and a particular portion of the earth that is thought to ground a nation's territorial rights. So, quickly, to summarize all of that, voluntarists say that decent states' territorial rights derive from the moral importance of group or individual choice, and controlling territory is necessary to the success of any choice to create or to continue as a political society. Functionalists say states' rights to control certain territories are required for them to perform the morally imperative tasks that only states can perform, such as making it possible for there to be justice. And nationalists justify states' territorial rights through appeal to the moral value of participation in cultural nationhood. Control over a territory is supposed to be centrally implicated in what it is to be one people, to be one nation. While these three approaches to justifying states' territorial rights disagree with one another in reasonably fundamental ways, their more basic disagreement is, in fact, with a common opponent, the cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan critics of the international state system deny that the robust territorial rights conferred on sovereign states by international law actually correspond to their moral rights over their territories. States' boundaries, they claim, ought to be open or very soft with respect to immigrants and travelers, say, being legitimately subject to only quite limited control by states themselves. Similarly, cosmopolitans have challenged states' claims over the natural resources within their territorial boundaries. In resource-rich countries, many cosmopolitan theorists have argued, are morally required to at least share their good fortune with less fortunate states and possibly to equalize access to or wealth deriving from their resources. Cosmopolitans occasionally challenge even the jurisdictional claims of modern states, though that's far less common. Uh, the principal cosmopolitan claims complaints are about the more property-like claims that states make. As a rule, even cosmopolitans have, have reservations about the possibility or desirability of a world state, and so they seem relatively content with states separately performing their mundane jurisdictional tasks. Okay, question. How convincingly can theories of states' territorial rights respond to the kind of skepticism that cosmopolitans have expressed? I'll start with nationalism and say a bit about each of these theories. The most obvious strength of nationalist approaches to states' territorial rights 
is the ease with which they seem to be able to deal with the particularity of such rights. Because many nations have historical, cultural, and emotional ties to particular geographical territories, nationalists have a natural argumentative avenue for explaining why particular territories, and not just some territory or other, ought to be subject to the exclusive control of particular states. So, the central case used to motivate nationalist accounts is something like this. A nation that, over a long period, occupies and transforms a piece of territory and continues to hold that territory in the present. I'm quoting from David Miller's version of the nationalist theory. Such a nation has rights over the territory because of having enhanced the land's value, because of the symbolic significance that the territory acquires for the nation, and because of the central role that the territory plays in the formation of the nation's identity. The particular land and the particular people shape and transform one another, have that kind of intimate relationship that establishes an appropriate moral connection. So your nation's attachment to your particular land, to this precious stone set in a silver sea, is that the, I think that's the right, right, isn't it? From somewhere, Richard II, Richard III, Richard II, I think. Um, In any event, and my nation's attachment to America, the beautiful stretching from sea to shining sea, are both, I take it, supposed to serve as examples of national identities that are tightly connected in the right way to particular national territories. Such examples, of course, suggest immediately the first obvious difficulty for nationalist approaches. Even if we're persuaded of the nationalist's conclusion in the idealized case, Most cases of political societies in the real world appear to lack at least some of the features of that case. Nations may not have occupied their territories for very long. They may not have transformed or enhanced the value of their territory in interesting ways, or their identities may not have been shaped to geographical locales in the right way. Worse, nations may not even be the current occupants of the territories to which they in fact have these sorts of connections. And most, if not all, of the states in the world that claim robust rights over particular territories are not single nations in any very strong sense at all, either because they're plainly multinational societies or because they simply lack the cultural cohesion and uniformity required for such an idealized notion of nationhood. And those facts immediately suggest that the nationalist accounts of what justify territorial rights for states may simply not apply to many actual states threatening to yield only skeptical conclusions about states' territorial rights, even if we embrace the kinds of argumentative paths that the nationalists advocate. Especially troubling are cases in which the state currently occupying and claiming the territory is not the one or the only one with the appropriate sorts of historical connections or cultural connections to the land to trigger nationalist-style reasoning about territorial rights. And, of course, those cases are most troubling when the current occupant took possession of the territory in question by plainly unjust or illegitimate means. Such cases are unhappily commonplace. So any nationalist account that hopes to apply its arguments non-skeptically to the real world is obliged to address such cases. The standard argumentative move, and I think this is the move that David Miller makes um, in uh, the same book that I just quoted from, Um, is simply to claim that the rights of innocent peoples and persons who are illegitimately annexed, conquered, or expelled 
fade out with the passage of time, while new rights for those who have wrongly seized their territories or for the descendants of those people fade in. While it is, of course, hard to be very precise about this phenomenon, it is a process that's assumed by many, including non-nationalist writers on the subject, to simply reflect the moral facts. The wrongs states and groups do in achieving their territorial goals may initially call for restitution, for, say, a, a restoration of the status quo ante, but when those wrongs become older, the wrongs are superseded, to use the currently popular language, and there springs into being a new set of moral rights for a new set of people to control the unjustly acquired territory. Because virtually no modern states can make territorial claims that are not historically stained by such injustices, it may seem that such a view of the supersession of past injustices must be a necessary feature of any adequate theory of territorial rights. We should note two points here, however. First, the devil is surely in the details on this matter. Exactly when and why rights go away and appear, how soon and for what reason victims lose their claims to restitution or reparation, and wrongdoers or their heirs acquire claims to ill-gotten gains, is a matter of significant theoretical and practical importance and great theoretical difficulty. I don't think we have an adequate theory of the supersession of rights there. People wave in that direction without really having a theory. Second, we'll only be required to accept anything very dramatic or suspiciously self-serving sounding in the way of an account of the supersession of our state's territorial wrongs if we think that a standard of adequacy for theory of, of territorial rights is that they not be interestingly revisionist in their implications. That is, that they be able to explain why stable, reasonably just states in the world actually have legitimate territorial jurisdiction over all of the territory that they claim as theirs. If we are prepared to accept instead the possibility that even reasonably just states may not be morally entitled to all that they claim, we can content ourselves with less draconian, more plausible accounts of the moral significance of the many relatively recent wrongs done by states in their quests for territory. For now, however, I want to simply flag this problem that confronts nationalist accounts, call it the problem of rights supersession. Um, that is the problem of how rights fade in and out with the passage of time. It is, I think, both a serious problem and a problem that, as we will see, also confronts many non-nationalist accounts of states' territorial rights. Surely, though, the most severe hurdle faced by nationalist accounts is simply the absence of cultural or national uniformity within the marked boundaries of the political world, an absence observable in, I think, every modern state. Nationalists tend to locate the relevant territorial rights in the cultural or national majorities within pluralistic political communities, leaving the preferences and interests and goals of those not included in the majority national group disturbingly to one side. Some defenders of nationalist theories assume uh, that even if some individuals or, min or minorities are left outside the cultural nation established on a particular territory, those outsiders at least share the cultural majority's desire for a shared national identity and for setting political goals through shared, ideally democratic, means. But this also seems wildly optimistic to me. I 
in many minorities in otherwise culturally uniform nation states would plainly prefer political autonomy on land of their own to constantly being outvoted on every matter of importance to them within the national status quo. Call this difficulty the problem of trapped minorities. It is, again, as we'll see, a difficulty shared by a variety of non-nationalist approaches. Next, consider functionalism. The strongest point of nationalist approaches, namely their ability to explain and justify the particularity of states' territorial rights, seems to me to be plainly a weakness of functionalist approaches. Legitimate states for the functionalist, remember, are simply functional political units, that is, institutionally structured collections of persons of whatever size or location that successfully perform their morally mandated functions, such as administering justice or establishing social equality or adequately promoting social utility. The clearest strength of functionalist theories of territorial rights seems to me to lie in their plausible claims that states must advance important moral goods in order to legitimate their use of coercion and that territorial control is a very important condition for achieving those moral goals. Why then is particularity a special difficulty for functionalism? It is the institutional structure of the state and the way that structure operates in the lives of its citizens that matters from the functional, functionalist viewpoint, not the location or the history of the state. The fact that functional states happen to arise in one place or another need not reflect any special relationship between those states' citizens and the land that they occupy. If those states could, function, could function effectively elsewhere or function effect, effectively with altered boundaries, simple considerations of the morally mandated functions of the state would seem to present no principled bar to such changes. Without additional non-functionalist principles in play, it's hard to see why depriving a legitimate state of territory or requiring some of its citizens to move to other effective states would constitute any wrong to them. Further, of course, currently functional states can plainly rest on a sordid history of wrongdoing. What matters for the functionalist is that the state in question here and now successfully administers justice or successfully promotes social happiness. That means, of course, that functionalist theories will not only have problems with the particularity of states' territorial claims, states can perform their morally required functions even with unwilling parties and groups subjected to political authority within their boundaries. And the functionalist, like the nationalist, owes us some kind of convincing account of when and why the rights of wronged parties just fade away as they're opposed by the interests of adequately functioning states. It seems to me that pure functionalism cannot guarantee that the boundaries of groups counted by the theory as rightfully subject to state authority don't enclose people who have plainly been illegitimately subjected to the state's coercive power. If a legitimate state, according to functionalist criteria for legitimacy, chose today to expand its territory and subject a portion of some neighboring state to its rule, such plainly illegitimate subjection would appear legitimate by functionalist reasoning, provided only that the state's morally mandated services were extended as well to its new subjects, so that justice was still effectively administered, perhaps more effectively administered, or happiness effectively promoted over the state's entire claimed domain. Because functionalism grounds states' territorial rights in their current provision 
two geographical areas of the services that states are morally required to provide, states can acquire justified territorial rights on this approach simply by making themselves the provider of these services. So suppose that the United States, in the dark of night, one night secretly moved its southern border barriers a few miles further south uh, into Mexico, claiming the newly enclosed Mexican territory and the very surprised Mexican subjects living on it as its own territory. There would appear to be nothing wrong with this, according to functionalist reasoning, provided only that the United States extended its effective administration of justice to this new territory as well. It is a state's administration of justice over a territory and people, not the history of the state's acquisition of territories and subjects that functionalism identifies as the source of its legitimate territorial rights. Finally, let's consider the voluntarist approach to states' territorial rights. I'm going to focus on the majoritarian or plebiscitary version of voluntarism since it's the one I don't like and I like the other one, which I'll come back to later on. I think it shares some of the same features that we've already observed in the nationalist and functionalist approaches. Uh, majoritarian voluntarism in its prominent recent form holds that any group that is, I'm quoting again, sufficiently large, wealthy, politically organized, and territorially contiguous so that it can secure for all individuals in the territory the essential benefits of political association has the right to form or sustain its own state on the territory it occupies. That's a quote from a book by Andy Altman and Kit Wellman in which they defend the plebiscitary voluntarist view of states' territorial rights. So states are legitimate if they're able and willing to protect the basic rights of their subjects and legitimate states have strong territorial rights over the geographical areas they occupy, according to this theory. So this view makes legitimacy and territorial jurisdiction a matter of the choice of the relevant politically capable group to exercise the core functions of a state. But the choice of, at issue, of course, is the choice of the majority of the group, with the group conceived as a territorially organized whole states must be territorially concentrated in order to perform their requisite functions, the argument goes, and achieving that kind of concentration requires them to subject everybody within their territorial borders to state authority. Right? The structure of the position thus immediately suggests again the problem of trapped minorities, but in this case the theory was specifically designed with a solution to the problem in mind. Trapped minorities can, it would seem, always escape their traps by themselves opting for secession, choosing to create legitimate states of their own on their own territory. While that escape route is obviously not much help to trapped individuals or trapped small, dispersed, or disorganized groups, any substantial non-impoverished group appears to have a reasonable route out from the trap of permanent minority status on this view. Any group that's willing and able to perform as a legitimate state may do so with some provisions. But consider for a moment what willing and able actually means here. Willing, of course, refers to the will of the majority of residents. Suppose, however, that you are untroubled by how this simply pushes one level downward the problem of trapped minorities. For example, the problem of Union sympathizers in the seceding Confederate States of America during the American Civil War. 
Focus instead on what it means for a group to be able to function as a legitimate state. According to majoritarian voluntarism, this means, first, that the group in question must be territorially concentrated, and second, it means the group must be sufficiently large, wealthy, and politically organized to act as a state. But notice that groups can be made or kept small, poor, politically disorganized, and territorially dispersed by the coercive actions of other parties, such as other states or groups that oppose their political independence. The will to act as a legitimate state amounts to nothing if it is defeated at every point by force. So the trap in question will certainly look more dire and unavoidable if others can simply legitimately use coercion to guarantee that it will not be escaped. Indeed, even groups that are territorially concentrated, large, rich, and organized can be stopped from acting as legitimate states if other states or groups are willing and able to forcibly stop them from doing so. Does a group count as relevantly able? And so, sorry, relative, does a group count as, fail to count as relative? relevantly able and so fail to have a right to self-determination as an autonomous state if some other state will simply use military force to prevent any attempt by the group to function as a state. The voluntarist, I assume, wants to answer no to this question. So suppose we count as able to function as a legitimate state all those groups that could do so if others did not coercively intervene to prevent their doing so. Then, however, we must ask several additional questions. First, how far back in history is coercive intervention by others going to count in determining this? Imagine a group that could have satisfied the requirements for being willing and able to act as a state, but that was forcibly expelled and dispersed by a militarily superior power, such as the Acadians who were expelled from Nova Scotia by Great Britain after its conquest of Canada. Once they were dispersed, or fled to Louisiana and France and other parts of Canada. They gave us Cajun cuisine, of course, from Louisiana, which was a great benefit. The Acadians were no longer a territorially concentrated or politically organized group. Indeed, they lacked any territory at all, since the original territory they had occupied was rapidly settled by others. That was the whole point of expelling them. Did the Acadians still possess the right to be a state? If so... On what territory did they have the right to establish their state? If not, then the theory simply privileges the existing territorial concentrations of persons for no good moral reason and regardless of how those concentrations were achieved. If such wrongs must be righted, if, say, the Acadians still possessed the rights of self-determination at issue even though they were unable to exercise them, when, if at all, did those rights and wrongs fade away. That's just the problem of right supersession again. The success or failure of a group to acquire the characteristics that give it the right to be a state and control the territory it occupies, according to this majoritarian (laughs) voluntarist view, in each case has a history. And that history may be filled even quite recently with palpable wrongs. Unless the theory can convincingly address this fact, it will continue to appear simply without argument to privilege the status quo. Indeed, plebiscitary voluntarism seems to me clearly to build into its basic logic a quite dramatic privileging of the territorial status quo. And if a territorially concentrated group derives its right to be self-determining on that territory from majoritarian voting within the group, 
then the theory simply must be assuming that existing territorial concentrations of persons constitute legitimate incorporated wholes. Otherwise, there's no reason to suppose that the will of the majority has any right to determine the lives or constrain the choices available to all persons within that group. I mean, I'm as big a fan of majority rule as the next guy, but majority voting within the group of six-foot-tall men, say, a group in which I happen to be included, surely doesn't establish a right for the majority of six-footers in the world to impose their preferred arrangements on me. Neither can majority voting within the group consisting of me and my students legitimately establish the requirements for receiving a passing grade in my classes. Why, then, should we suppose, with the plebiscitary voluntarist, that the majority of persons who just happen to live in some arbitrarily defined geographical territory have the right to create a self-determining political society with territorial jurisdiction and political authority over the minority of residents? We should suppose this only if we believe that people come pre-sorted into legitimate groups, groups identified in this case, only by their members' geographical proximity to one another and bounded only by whatever arbitrary outer geographical boundaries we might choose to identify. And that belief, needless to say, would be very difficult to defend. This result, of course, is unsurprising in any theory that simply transforms so smoothly majority will into majority right. Wherever mere majority will is allowed to dominate the determination of state territorial boundaries, the manner of composition of the body of which that majority is the majority should be our primary moral concern. Just as my populous neighborhood may not legitimately incorporate the adjoining less populous, less affluent, less organized neighborhood without its consent and then control it by majority rule, Political bodies may not legitimately subject to their authority all the unwilling people that they are able to surround and outvote. Nor should it matter that those so subjected were incapable of themselves functioning as a political society, especially if this incapacity is simply accepted as such without consideration of its causes. If a group's inability to function as a state is understood independently of the history and source of that inability, plebiscitary voluntarism will simply face, this again, the same kind of problem that's faced by pure functionalism. So it seems to me that the shared, the standard contemporary approaches to justifying decent states' territorial rights all share a set of problems. Their justifications of territorial jurisdiction for reasonably just or decent states permit those states to trap unwilling individuals and minorities within their jurisdictions. They appear to deny persons and groups that are plainly wronged in the process of territorial acquisition and concentration any obvious just remedy for those wrongs. And they justify territorial rights for states to the full extent of those states' announced jurisdictions or effective ties to the land. This appears to be true, whether the theory attempts to derive territorial rights from the value of collective or majoritarian free choice and self-determination, as on the voluntarist view, or from the value of national orientation of a people on their land, as on the nationalist view, or from the value of justice or social happiness, as on the functionalist view. What I propose to do quickly in closing is briefly describe and defend a much older view of states' justified territorial rights that is distinctive precisely in virtue of its effectively avoiding 
all of these problems that are shared by its competitors. The Lockean view, the individualist version of voluntarism, rests on three compelling claims. First, that the only persons who are legitimately subject to a state's authority are those who are willingly subject to it. Second, that the only clear cases of rightful state claims to territorial rights over particular geographical areas are claims to the territory lived on and labored on by that state's willing subjects. And third, that the rights of those persons who are wronged in states' territorial acquisitions do not simply fade away in the interest of the more powerful or the more numerous. Locke, you will no doubt all remember, argued that only those who have consented to membership in political society are legitimately subject to its authority, and those who agree to be citizens, Locke claimed, must be understood to consent as well to submitting to the state's jurisdiction, any land over which they have rights of occupancy or ownership the heart of each legitimate state's rightful territory is thus conceived of as constructed piecemeal from the free choices of persons to submit both themselves and the land on which they live and work to the state's authority. While agreements between legitimate states and the collective labors of the state's subjects may add or subtract to this state's territory, the heart and origin of that territory is its patchwork composition from the individual holdings of its state's members. So, the Lockean view condemns both the political subjection of the unwilling and the exercise of territorial control by states over areas that are not central to their willing subjects' lives. The principal virtues of Lockean voluntarism are plainly these. First, it explains the particularity of states' territorial claims in a natural and straightforward way by identifying each state's, each state's territories with the particular spaces in which its willing members live and labor. Second, the Lockean theory has simple and, I think, persuasive answers to the problem of trapped minorities and to concerns about the supersession of rights and past injustices done by states. The Lockean position is committed to the view that trapped minorities may not be subject to political authority without their consent, though they may, of course, be watched and defended against, because they enjoy the same rights to live and choose freely that each polity's members exercised in choosing to create or join a state. Just as such minorities may not undermine the harmless political arrangements of those around them, those who are, whose arrangements those are may not interfere with the harmless activities of the unwilling. The complaint that states can't run smoothly without uniformly subjecting all within the state's claim boundaries to the same political authority is, I think, both normally factually false and, on the Lockean view, always morally beside the point. Similarly, Lockean voluntarism rejects the idea of any simple supersession of rights. It can't be embarrassed by theoretical insensitivity to the plights of the expelled, the annexed, or the wrongly subjected. The Lockean view is thus not vulnerable to charges of over-eagerness to simply affirm the legitimacy of the territorial status quo, if anything, just the opposite. The rights of those maimed in the machinery of politics don't simply fade away for the convenience of the powerful or the numerous. Those whose rights, whose rights have been violated in creating or reshaping states' territories retain the right to restoration of the status quo ante, rights superstition. Supersession is, according to the Lockean voluntarist, simply wishful thinking, typically done by those who most stand to benefit from it. Most Lockeans hold that rights over land are heritable, 
and do not simply disappear as the specific right holders and wrongdoers die off, and rights over land held by freely incorporated groups continue to be held by those groups even as their memberships change. Question, with all of these noteworthy virtues, why have political philosophers and political theorists not flocked to embrace the Lockean voluntarist theory? Uh, The most obvious problem, of course, is that the theory offers an account of states' legitimate territorial rights that doesn't match up very well with the real-world claims made by actual modern states. States are not voluntary associations, nor have the territories that states claim been constructed from the submission of land to state jurisdiction by willing subjects. Lockean theory thus seems to describe an ideal that is too distant from the hard reality of the world to permit its application to real-world territorial claims and disputes. One might think that the plebiscitary voluntarist and functionalist and national accounts do far better on this score since they're focused more on states' present characters and capacities and less on the historical processes that produced the present distribution of states' claimed territories. These views thus seem at least more immediately applicable to real-world territorial claims and disputes, despite any theoretical defects of the sort on which I've been uh, talking today. In part, these kinds of complaints about the Lockean theory are simply correct, because it takes seriously historical wrongs and the rights of the unwillingly subjected, the theory's practical implications will inevitably be more revisionist than will be those of the alternative theories that I've criticized. But all of these theories are also ideal theories, all of these other theories. They all describe ideals to which real states' territorial claims will conform only very imperfectly. Many real states' territorial claims will not qualify as legitimate either on in the terms of the plebiscitary voluntarist or functionalist or nationalist theories, nor will those theories obviously yield clear solutions to the most pressing of the world's actual territorial disputes. These are, after all, philosophical theories. The job of philosophical theories of this sort, in my view, is to identify our moral target, as it were, to describe how states' territorial claims could be fully rightful and legitimate, There will then be separate and equally difficult questions about how, in a distinctly non-ideal world, we can approach that moral target in an efficient and fair fashion. But the true test for an ideal philosophical theory, in my view, is not how closely and comfortably its prescriptions match the ways in which we actually live our political lives, but rather how plausibly it identifies the most grievous kinds of wrongs that we do to each other in the course of those lives. And Lockean voluntarism, I submit, I submit, carries a lot of force without argument, but Lockean voluntarism, I submit, identifies the wrongs that need righting in a clear and compelling way, at least putting us in a good position to attempt to redress them and to gradually achieve a more rightful condition. The alternative theories that I've criticized seem to me to be theoretically insensitive to too many of the clear wrongs that states do in our names. When states insist on exercising territorial jurisdiction over land occupied by unwilling subjects or over land occupied by nobody at all, or when they expel or destroy the innocent in their quests for territorial control, they wrong persons in ways that require rectification, either through the adjustment of territorial boundaries or through genuine reparations of some other sort. 
Indeed, as I will argue tomorrow, I think that modern states also frequently do wrong simply in their efforts to control the sites of a wide range of the world's natural resources. In real-world disputes about territorial boundaries, or about rights to natural resources, of course, the facts will be contested, claims will conflict, and disagreement will inevitably persist. A sound philosophical theory of territorial rights can, in my view, at best only identify the salient moral vectors in play in such disputes and lay out the general guidelines for pursuing the best resolutions of those disputes. And accomplishing that would certainly be something, even if it would not be everything. Thanks. That's a good question. I think it's certainly true that voluntarists and functionalists uh, and nationalists have different conceptions of um, what what's morally important about a people. I mean, Kantian, Kantian functionalists generally define peoples in political terms. That is, they take the state to create the people rather than view the people as a pre-existing entity. Uh, and nationalists don't, of course. Voluntarists are somewhere in the middle, right? insofar as they take peoples to be created by the choices of individuals to join together as peoples. So I see these, rather than seeing the functionalist as sort of opposed to everyone else in this regard, I see these as just three different conceptions of what kinds of collective entities possess territorial rights. Uh, so I'd say, in a, in a sense, they're, they are arguing a common problem um, but they're characterizing the relevant agents of the relevant self-determining agents differently. And that, of course, yields very different accounts of the kinds of states that can have the rights in question. But uh, I'm not sure that I think they're answering, they're trying to answer different kinds of questions altogether because Kantians do want to explain why it is that uh, these legally created peoples, the legal entities, have morally justified rights over the territories on which they operate. I think, that, I think that's sort of an approach to the same question anyway, at least as, as I view it. You, uh, are, are people allowed to follow up their questions with skeptical remarks? Very briefly, yeah. Yeah, 
that's certainly true, that there could be there could be those differences. But still, the idea is sort of delineating a territory over which the relevant people has a claim of exclusive control of the sort that states claim. So, I mean, an interesting thing about the Kantian, the sort of functionalist position and people who have the relevant into it, right. I mean, we have these intuitions about you know, what can be done with Somalia. I mean, surely it's not so bad if somebody goes in there and keeps them from slaughtering each other. Right? I think the Lockean can agree with this. Right? The problem that the Kantian faces, I think, is that the Kantian has to say the same thing about all non-politically organized groups of people and individuals, right? The, all of those people, according to Kant and to most Kantians, exist in an unjust condition, right? And the fundamental moral mandate of the Kantian theory is that we, we have a basic duty to act justly towards others, and we can only act justly towards others if we do so under the auspices of a a justice-administering set of institutions. So that means the Kantian has to say the same thing about the harmless aboriginals that they say about Somalia, right? Whereas a Lockean, I think, can say different things about the two cases. Can say of the harmless aboriginals, it would be deeply wrong to annex, to conquer and, and or politicize them if they're getting along fine without effective justice-administering institutions. Right? But it might be. I mean, look, if you're a kind of, if you're a sort of libertarian Lockean, I'm not, but if you're a libertarian Lockean who believes that there are no duties owed to other, uh, to people outside of your own political society, then you might think not only that it's, there's, you might think that clearly there's no moral requirement that you go in and, and order chaotic, uh, to murderous situations like the one you described, Lockeans with a slightly more generous sort of moral theory who believe in what Locke actually believed in himself uh, hold that we have duties towards others to, uh, to help them when they're in dire need, and it might be justified to impose some kind of order on such an arrangement simply because of that, but not in the case of harmless aboriginals who are not in dire need of order. So you know, I like the Lockean position precisely because it divides those two kinds of cases up in a way that I don't think Kantian functionalism can without 
right? What you can do is what Annie Stiltz is doing these days, which is trying to tack on a whole bunch of conditions on pure functionalism that effectively import the sort of Lockean standards in to deal with these problem cases. But it looks to me, look, I, I love Annie's work, and this is not meant personally, but um, I think this is, uh, this just has the look of cleaning up the counterintuitive implications of functionalism with some ad hoc provisions. And that doesn't have the feel of a real theory to me. That has the feel of just trying to avoid certain kinds of objections without any kind of clear theoretical unity to the view. So that's one of the reasons I like Locke in voluntarism is it can deal, I think, more persuasively with the distinction between sort of harmless individuals and groups and groups living in genuine discord and chaos and harming one another. You, you clearly want to follow this up too. What you'd have is a Swiss cheese state. Yeah, I mean, that's a sort of traditional worry about Lockean voluntarism is that it looks like it can leave all sorts of pockets of... I'm okay with that, actually. I think, there, I think first of all, that a state can function that way. Um, I can at least imagine a state functioning that way. But second of all, that there are always going to be sort of serious economic pressures for the pockets to move outward towards the boundaries. Uh, and as long as that's done voluntarily on the Lockean view, then there's nothing wrong with those pressures sort of exerting a force that pushes the pockets out towards the boundaries. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that a modern state can't function with territorially sort of isolated individuals who are not subjected to the same order of authority as the majority of residents. In fact, I mean, there are some cases in the real world where States seem to function that way. Reason I mean, Israel is sort of functioning that way now, right? Um, and it's not obvious to me that you couldn't function adequately with even more territorial pockets than that. Now, admittedly, Lockean voluntarism says that individuals can constitute those territorial pockets, but individuals have lots of there are lots of things you can do to individuals on the Lockean view that don't involve subjecting them to political authority, like guarding against violence and aggression. So you can control them in certain ways. You can monitor their behavior and defend yourself against it. What you can't do is subject them to the same political authority that the willing are subjected to. And that might and that might be a better version of now. And the problem, I mean, the problem with the nationalist view that I was describing, of course, uh, is the problem with the view that attempts to that supposes that we can do something like pretty, pretty close to one-to-one mapping of sort of political of nations onto political units, which seems to me wildly implausible. Uh, but I would be I would be happier with a nationalism of the sort that you describe, except that I don't like the basic nationalist argument to begin with. That's how it always works out. Everybody likes my criticisms of other views, but not my view. <laughs> so, so I mean, my, I guess 
my issue is about the practical problems also. But my, my, my concern is that because of the practical problems, states would insist in this initial situation when people give up their rights, that people not uh, retain the rights to say pass on their land to their children in a strong form where the children can actually succeed. Right? Right. Because I know there's all sorts of practical problems, but it's just cheap. And I say, look, if you want to be part of the state, you can't just give me land now. You promise me that you're not going to bequeath this land to your children in a way that allows them to succeed mm-hmm. because of these problems. Right. So wouldn't, wouldn't, I mean, that seems to be a very sensible, sort of in an ideal theory situation, thing for a state to insist that the people who initially constitute it. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's Locke's view of territorial rights as well. That Dave Locke takes uh, the consent that any landowning member gives to be a member of the political society to be consent as well uh, only to transmit that property to other individuals who agree to be members on the same terms, right? So children children on Locke's own view aren't entitled to, to, trans- to secede with their land because the land has... So the question is, has that actually happened in the history of a particular nation or is this just a convenient fiction that Locke trots out? And for the most part, it's a convenient fiction. But it's certainly, I think you're absolutely right that it's a perfectly reasonable restriction for an incorporating group of persons to impose on their members. And I don't think there would be anything wrong in imposing that kind of restriction on their members. Um, the question is, I mean, the problem is that real political groups don't map on to Lockean groups to begin with. But then the problem about minorities is going to rise up with those. I mean, but your, your, your question is an idealized project, and if, if this is the sort of counterfactual, then... Yeah. And that is the, I mean, what I, ta- what I take to be, I mean, different people have different conceptions of the relationship between ideal and non-ideal theory. I mean, I take... I take my conception to be roughly the same conception as Rawls. We have a different theory, as it were, a different ideal theory, but I take my conception of the relationship of ideal to non-ideal theory to be roughly the same as his, and the idea is that ideal theory sets a moral target of a perfect, in his case, a perfectly just political society, in my case, of a perfectly rightful distribution of territorial rights, and that non-ideal theory is about the best, sort of most efficient and fairest means to achieving that that target. One of the things Rawls says is important about ideal theory is that a good ideal theory will identify the most grievous kinds of wrongs and perhaps rank them in terms of grievousness so we know where to start our movement towards the ideal. So that's, he takes the ranking of the two principles or the three parts of the two principles to be what identifies the grievousness of the wrongs at issue. And I'm supposing something like that here. So what, what's good about Lockean voluntarism as an ideal theory, in my view, is that it identifies fairly precisely, as precisely as one can do in these matters, I think, the most grievous kinds of wrongs that states do or that groups of individuals do in establishing their territorial uh, concentrations or their territorial boundaries. And then the rest is left to non-ideal theory, which seems like a cop-out to, I mean, to most non-philosophers. When philosophers say that, it sounds like a cop-out, and maybe to a certain extent it is, because we don't have the we don't have the wherewithal to actually do the work in non-ideal theory. But in any event... Um, so I think I think I agree with the the spirit of your question. Uh, I mean, I think you're right that that's a reasonable sort of restriction for an incorporating group of persons to impose on their members, and that there would be nothing wrong with that. But that in fact, 
because in in real political societies, there I mean there isn't they aren't voluntarily incorporated wholes. We're going to have more problems with minority rights than than that suggests. Is, it, is, is the question really how long the consent lasts, whether it's in perpetuity, or is the question really about what the consent is to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, since I think political consent is not very much in evidence in the real political world, um, one has to sort of give imaginative answers to what political consent is consent to, and the and the answer from the Lockean perspective is consent is to whatever the specific terms of the consent and the context indicate that consent is to. So one would, in order to in order to see what the limits of your consent were, on on my view of consent, one would have to look at the actual consent, the process of giving your consent, what you explicitly consented to, and what was implicit in the in the context of the consensual act, and that's what your consent was given to. Now, in the case of Burundi, my guess is that not very many of the people counted as political consenters to begin with, uh, so that the question of sort of what was their consent to and how long would it last is uh, not an applicable question from the start. And as I, as I guess all I can do is repeat the, the first answer again. It depends on how the, I mean, what the consent was given to, how the consent was understood, and how it was understood by the consenting party. It might be. I mean, in constitutional democracies, many people take their political consent to be contingent on the laws satisfying constitutional constraints, say. That's supposing that someone actually gave political consent in a constitutional democracy. That would be a natural way to understand the limits of consent, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, there's more to be said about how long consent lasts and so on, which is another interesting question, but perhaps I shouldn't go on. Go ahead, uh, since this wasn't the original question that you actually called on anyway. So I'll be more precise in my pointing of name now. Some of us like your criticisms and, and like the theory, too. It's nice to hear. Before, before we sign on, one last question. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a contender view to yours, which didn't perhaps get full enough criticism. There were so many. And 
consequentialist is going to help himself to all those advantages and merits of general Transaction costs. Well, okay. Um, you're certainly right that I didn't talk much about the concept. There aren't very many consequentialists out there defending theories of territorial rights. I mean, the only explicit one that I know of is in Sidgwick, um, and and that you know, takes up two paragraphs. Um, but I think most of what you said is right, actually. I think the weakest point of the consequentialist position on territorial rights, if it's understood as a position uh, aimed at justifying all of the territorial, ter territorial rights that typical modern states claim, the weakest point is going to be is going to sort of come tomorrow, as it were, with the more property-like rights that states claim. Where, if we're thinking about resource rights that states claim, it seems to me that the prospect of a UN commission is not as terrifying. Well, I mean, almost anything the UN does is moderately terrifying. Uh, but we can at least imagine it being done better with relatively small changes. And the redistribution of assets from the, uh, the harvesting and use of natural resources looks like something that could plausibly be dealt with by an international body and that it would be really hard to justify, uh, that is, it would be really hard to justify sovereign states' resource 
claims, the claim to control all of the resources that are on or around or above or below their territories, um, that's a hard claim to justify in consequentialist terms in the face of the massive and dire need in the world. Could, you above all will agree that it could be better. It's better than it was. If you've got something that really is better that goes to the UN, that's the consequentialist. Okay. I think that's false. I, I mean, I think the consequentialist will fail on that point. Though I think most of the points that you made about sort of unilaterally moving borders in consequentialist terms are probably right. And maybe one of the reasons that I didn't focus on it more uh, is that I didn't have as much to say about what was wrong with it. What I think is really wrong with it is what it has to say about the property-like rights that states claim. And Lockeans, I think, have something nice to say about that. I think you're right that that is where the Lockean view is most under pressure, and I'm one of those Lockeans who thinks that a Lockean theory is actually capable of generating a plausible theory of natural property rights. So it's not so much a question of who's settled on what as, I mean, as you put it correctly, uh, which view is right. Uh, and it's that right view that is going to determine the, the boundaries of of uh, legitimate states on the Lockean picture. Now, it's a little less awful than that sounds, I think, uh, because if what we're thinking about is sort of group incorporated wholes of people who are living and working somewhere, most of the living and working that people do somewhere, provided that it's on some modest set of holdings, is going to qualify as grounding property rights in Lockean terms, even if those people don't consider themselves as landowners. For instance, sort of what, what Native Americans did in the United States, despite the fact that they had no conception, or at least most of the tribes had no conception of the possibility of an individual owning a piece of land, let alone a society owning a big 
plot of land. Nonetheless, it seems to me possible to criticize the displacement of Native American tribes in Lockean property terms, um, but it would have to be, you're right, I mean, it would have to be, the Lockean would have to be saying this is the correct view of what grounds rights of occupancy and rights to ownership. And uh, lots of people, I mean, Kantians, for instance, don't think that any such theory makes sense, that property is a fundamentally political concept, that one can only understand the idea of a property right vis-a-vis certain kinds of justice-administering institutions, and that's a view that I have to reject, and I do reject it. That's right. Right. That's right. Interestingly, Kantians have to reject the human position as well on property. So, I mean, actually, I mean, Kantians often talk in a very self-satisfied way about how they're not stuck with the stupid Lockean view, um, but they're also not stuck with a lot of other views that most people regard as less stupid than the stupid Lockean view, like the Humean view. <laughs> like it conven- any kind of conventionalist theory of property has to be rejected by a Kantian, too. Unfortunately, not everyone got to ask their question, but there are two pieces of good news. Um, the first piece of good news is there's a tomorrow. Um, and I have your names on my list so you get priority tomorrow with your question. The second piece of good news, even better news, is um, there's a reception to which you're all invited just in the atrium in the old building. Um, so maybe you get a chance to ask your question over a glass of wine. Thank you very much. Thank you.